So here's a question. Where's your hope this Christmas? Or you could say, what are your expectations for this season? And are they reasonable? You know, as I was thinking about it, I came to realize I have all sorts of hopes and all sorts of expectations for Christmas. For example, I'm desperately hoping that we have snow for the holidays. I mean, I grew up in Wisconsin, and after college, I moved to Vermont. So I'm used to having lots and lots of snow during the winter. And we always had snow at Christmas. I mean, don't you just think of the movie White Christmas? Snow, snow, snow. It won't be long until the ground is covered in snow. My wife is going to get up and start dancing, I'm telling you. (laughs) Right? Snow would be wonderful for Christmas. I'm also hoping and expecting to have all four kids home for the Christmas holiday this year. Last year, Sam was gone. Next year, who knows where they're going to be? So my definite hope is for them to be home. And I'm totally expecting that to be awesome. Kids laughing and joking around all over the house, but always getting along and never making a mess with all sorts of amazing food, yet never having any dirty dishes, and everyone always being willing and joyful to jump in and clean up when things do get messy. And our Christmas services, my expectation, they're going to be awesome, organized, delightful. I'll always be able to prepare in a quiet office that is never distracted, so no complications. And when we open presents on Christmas morning, I'll be snuggled in my favorite chair with a hot cup of coffee that never grows cold, the fire crackling in the fireplace, the kids patiently opening just one present at a time with packages that are easy to open and all the batteries are included. And then everything works and everything fits. So my kids are happy, my wife is smiling, and all is merry and bright. Those are my hopes. Those are my expectations for Christmas. Then you sit here and you laugh. Why do you laugh? Because you know they're obviously unreasonable expectations. But how about you? I'm sure that at one level or another, your expectations for Christmas are just as unreasonable. And how do I know that? Because we're so often discouraged by the outcome. And why is that? Well, it's because we have unreasonable expectations. And yet, do you know, when we look at the Bible, specifically at the Christmas story in Luke, we find people with all sorts of hopes, all sorts of expectations that are never disappointed. They never get frustrated. And they have expectations and hopes that are even more miraculous than mine. But they have a simple hope in God. So hope not in presence, Not in lights and decorations, not in food and festivities, not in busy travel plans, or even in friends and family, parents, spouses, or kids. Their hope is simple. It's in God's promise that a son will be born and a child will be given who will be the king of kings over an eternal kingdom that will never end. And when we have that same hope, a simple hope, hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will never be disappointed. 
So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is on page 855 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Also encourage you to have my outline in front of you right there in the Bible, your open Bible. Title this morning, Simple Hope, Hope Announced, Hope Explained, Hope Embraced. So Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Follow along as I read. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he, the angel Gabriel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. First thing I want you to see is how we're immediately introduced to all the characters. So first we have Mary, right, who's a virgin. Joseph, the man she's betrothed to, which, by the way, is a legal agreement. So similar to being engaged, but even stronger and more significant than that. In fact, at this point in their relationship, for them to break up would require an official divorce. That's how serious the relationship is. And yet they've not been sexually intimate with one another, so very different than our current culture. Last character, the angel Gabriel was sent. He's sent by God to Nazareth for the specific reason of delivering this message, which is clearly a message of hope, which makes Gabriel a messenger of hope. Now, why do I say that? Well, because that's what Gabriel says. Look at verse 28. And he, Gabriel, came to her, Mary, and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. So incredibly encouraging to hear that the Lord is with you, Mary, and yet Mary is troubled. And who can blame her? I mean, the angel, the greeting, the whole thing, it's just weird. But Gabriel solidifies this is a message of hope by saying in verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, do you see how Gabriel's a messenger of hope? Because the opposite of hope is fear. And Gabriel's clear, do not be afraid, Mary, because you found favor with God. In other words, I'm not bringing you a message of doom and gloom and judgment, but a message of hope, which is delivered in verses 31 to 33, and it's delivered in three parts. So number one, Mary, though she's a virgin, will give birth to a son. Number two, this son is clearly not just any son, but son of the most high. And number three, he will sit on David's throne and he will rule and reign for all eternity. Verse 33, for he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. That's an unbelievable message of hope. 
Let me just quickly unpack it by looking specifically at the Old Testament connections, starting with number one, the virgin birth. Now, do you realize that the virgin birth is one of the greatest signs that could ever be given to confirm that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? The reason for that is because it's one of those signs that tells you that you've arrived. I mean, there's different kinds of signs, right? Some signs tell you which way to go, I-95, I-91 north to Springfield, I-91 south to Hartford. Those are signs that tell you which way to go. Other signs tell you what to do. Slow down. Stop. Yield. But some signs tell you that you've arrived. In fact, you saw one when you pulled in this morning. Welcome to Christ's Proclamation Church, which means what? means you're here. So this pregnancy, this virgin birth, is one of those signs. So it's a sign announcing that the king has come. And we know that because it's the fulfillment of prophecy. So if you would, go ahead and flip back in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10. So right to the middle of your Bible, probably, Isaiah chapter 7. It's on page 572 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. As you're turning to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10, let me set the context. Because Ahaz, at this point in time, is the king of Judah, located in Jerusalem, who's been recently attacked by two enemies, and these enemies weren't able to conquer Ahaz or Jerusalem, but it left him pretty shaken up. So God sends a prophet, prophet Isaiah, to strengthen Ahaz, specifically that he might trust in the Lord. So Ahaz is not trusting in the Lord, but he's working a political deal with Assyria, a much larger superpower than the enemies who are attacking him. So if that sounds complicated, let me simplify. So picture two mice and a cat. The two mice are the enemies who are currently attacking Ahaz. So what does Ahaz do? He hires a cat. And that cat is Assyria to take care of his mice problem. Now, this is not a smart move because God has promised to deliver Ahaz if he will simply stand firm in the faith and trust the Lord. And to confirm God's promise, he offers to give Ahaz a sign. This is where we pick it up. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol, or high as heaven. So God's saying, pick any sign that you want, Ahaz, to confirm my promise. It can be big or small, or it can be miraculous. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. He doesn't want a sign, because he's already hired the cat, Assyria. So Isaiah responds, Here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary God also. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Now, what's so glorious about this prophecy is that it's given by God despite Ahaz's refusal to engage with God and despite his unbelief. And Ahaz will be dealt with appropriately. There's an immediate fulfillment 
In fact, a virgin or a young girl has a son, and the son is a continual reminder to Ahaz that he will be judged for his unbelief. And he is judged, ironically, by the cat. Assyria, the political power he was dealing with. But the sign ultimately points forward to the Lord Jesus. Now, why do I say that? Well, because of the details. The details make it clear. God initiates. God chooses the sign, and God provides the sign. And what's the purpose of the sign? That God will provide the way of salvation. And that's going to happen through his son. Remember Isaiah chapter 9? Flip forward to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And do you know when this prophecy was given? 700 years before the birth of Christ. And yet it's fulfilled perfectly in all the details. Also that in the fullness of time, we would know that this baby, born of a virgin, born in a manger, would be the anointed one from God, the promised Savior. And what's his name? Jesus, which means God saves. That alone should give you all the confidence in the world, all the hope in the world that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one who will save his people from their sins. But Gabriel has two other parts to his message. So go ahead and flip forward back to Luke chapter 1. All the parts of his message are designed to give us a glorious hope. So part number one, the virgin birth. Part number two, this miraculous child Jesus will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. Now that's an interesting title, don't you think? Son of the Most High. Do you want to guess where that is found most often in the Bible? It's in the book of Daniel and in very familiar places. For example, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were servants of the Most High. Nebuchadnezzar, the arrogant king of Babylon, was humbled by God until he realized that the Most High rules the kingdom and gives it to the lowliest of men. And when he did, he blessed the Most High and praised him whose kingdom will endure forever. Even in Daniel chapter 7, when we're introduced to the Ancient of Days, we're told that the saints of the Most High will receive and possess the kingdom forever and ever. What's my point? My point is that Daniel is the last chronological book in the Old Testament before God goes silent some 400 to 500 years. And the whole point of the book is that a new kingdom is coming. So first the Babylonians, then the Greeks, the Medes, and the Persians, then the Romans, and then what? A kingdom that will have no end, that will last forever. God will give that kingdom to the lowliest of men, to one who is humble. And yet to one like the Son of Man, who came to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given a kingdom which shall not pass away and shall not be destroyed. So Gabriel is saying, this son, 
The son from Daniel is this son. And this son who is lowly and is humble and yet is going to be great is, yes, the son of man, and he's also the son of the Most High. He's the son of God. What a glorious picture of hope. And transitions right into the third part of his message, that Jesus will sit on David's throne and reign for all eternity. Now this comes right out of 2 Samuel chapter 7. So I can't help myself. You're going to turn back there. So if you would, turn back to 2 Samuel. We just finished 1 Samuel. This is a great anticipation of 2 Samuel. We're going to do our Christmas series, and we're going to do Titus in January, and we're coming back to 2 Samuel. But you get a foretaste right now, this morning. So 2 Samuel, go ahead and flip back there. It's page 259, using one of the Bibles. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This point in the narrative, God is speaking to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. God says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, your seed after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Three prophecies right here in this section that should stand out to you immediately that will be fulfilled in the coming Messiah and have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. The first is obvious. The Messiah will come from the line of David. Verse 12, I will raise up your offspring from your own body, from your lineage, David. We've already seen Luke 1.27, that Joseph is from the house of David. So Jesus is in the line of David. Second, there's an unbelievably close relationship between God and this coming king. You see it in verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. I mean, how clear is that? We just read in Luke chapter 1 that Jesus is the son of the most high. So yes, the son of man, but he's also the son of God. And third, God promises this king will rule and reign for all eternity. Then to make that especially clear, it's said twice. Verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, your throne shall be established forever. So this entire message from Gabriel is a message of hope. Why is it a message of hope? Because it's grounded on the promises of God that have been given to us centuries before. I mean, these prophecies were made over the course of thousands of years, and they were made through, the ones that we just looked at this morning, through three different prophets, Samuel, Isaiah, and Daniel. And yet there's one clear, one consistent message that a Messiah will come, born of a virgin, to save his people from their sins, and his kingdom will be established forever and ever and ever. Amen. Praise God. This message of hope is not only announced, it's announced. It's promised from of old, and it's been announced. 
But it's not just announced, it's explained and it's confirmed. Number two, hope explained. Follow along as I read Luke chapter 1, verses 34 to 38. Mary said to the angel, right, here's the response, right? Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, can you relate to Mary's question? I mean, she's standing here talking to an angel. That doesn't happen every day. And then the reality that she's a virgin. So she's never been intimate with a man before in her life, including Joseph. Yet not only does the angel declare she'll be pregnant, but the child will be the son of God. So the promised king from David's line who will sit on David's throne and rule and reign for all eternity. That's unbelievable. Which is essentially what she says in the question, right? She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? But Gabriel answers. So be the answer given. Starting with the virgin birth, verse 35. That the power of the Most High will overshadow her and cause her to be with child. Now, obviously, we don't know how all these details work themselves out, but we don't know that about any miracle. That's what makes them miraculous. But what we do know is the Father of Jesus is divine. So it's not Joseph, but God who is the Father. And why is that critical? Because if Jesus were brought forth through normal human beings, so both father human and mother human, he would be born in sin, which is totally consistent with what the Bible teaches about us because every single one of us is born in sin, and we sin because we're sinners. Great example of that fact is that you never have to teach your children to be selfish. You don't ever have to do that. You don't have to teach them to be mean. You don't have to teach them to be destructive. They do that on their own. Why? Because they're born in sin. And they sin because they're sinners. You know, I remember Gabby, when she was three years old, I was tempted to put a picture of my two kids up here so you could go, oh. <laughs> and your immediate thought would be, they're innocent. Nope, not the point of my illustration. I remember Gabby, when she was three years old, she would build these incredible towers out of Dupla blocks, and they would always be like twice as tall as she was. So she'd start building them, she'd get on the couch, and she'd build them taller than she was, right? And she's working really hard on this. And I'm always so proud of her, like, this is ingenuity. I have an engineering background. I'm like, hey, here we go. I'm like, this is it, right? Mechanical engineer. She's building all these towers. And then all of a sudden, you would hear Sam coming, like a freight train storming down the hallway into the living room and he would absolutely destroy Gabby's tower without thought. And when he did it, he would yell like he was a conquering hero. 
And the consequence, you can guess it, right? Gabby would sit there and cry. And Sam would be absolutely oblivious. He didn't even know, right? Here's my point. I didn't have to teach him that. That all came naturally. We're naturally selfish. We're naturally mean. We're naturally destructive. Every single one of us. We sin because we're sinners. Do you understand? It's absolutely critical that Jesus is born of Mary because the Spirit of the Most High overshadowed her. It's critical that Jesus is not born like us. Otherwise, he'd have, to have, he'd have his own sin problem to deal with. Look again at verse 35. It is so clear in the text. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, here's the result. The child to be born will be called holy, righteous, good, set apart, sinless, and perfect. He will be holy, the Son of God. Jesus had to be born without sin if he's going to be an adequate substitute for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Gabriel explains the virgin birth. And he also explains Jesus' sinless nature. But ultimately, I think the glory in this passage is how he explains that this is all possible. Number three, how does Gabriel explain the miracle of the incarnation? Verse 37, he says, nothing will be impossible with God. So nothing has been impossible, nothing is impossible, and nothing will be impossible. Because God is a signs and wonders working God. Just read your Old Testament and you'll see one miracle after another. Starting with the creation, right? The creation that is ex nihilo, out of nothing. God speaks all things into creation. He calls into being that which does not exist. And he continues to do that. In fact, we see a great example of it right here in verse 36. Elizabeth was barren. Which means what? It means her womb was dead, and she had no hope of a child. But now she's miraculously pregnant, and she will give birth to John the Baptist in just three months. Reminds you of Abraham and Sarah, doesn't it? If you remember Genesis 21, Abraham was 100 years old when Sarah gave birth to Isaac. Romans chapter 4 tells us that without becoming weak in faith, Abraham contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. And yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform which is the exact same response that we see from Mary. Verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So Mary responds in faith, and she's filled with hope. But what I want you to be absolutely 
crystal clear on. It's, a, it's not a hope in herself. Mary's not hoping in herself. It's a hope in God. And it's a hope in the promise of God. She's fully assured that what God has promised, although it's miraculous through Gabriel, he will also be able to perform. You see, nothing, absolutely nothing is impossible with the God of the Bible. And we see that hope played out. And we see that hope embraced. First in Elizabeth, then in Mary. Number three, hope embraced. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste in hurry into the hill country to a town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Uh, you got to grab a hold of all that Elizabeth knows. It's incredible. Verse 41, she knows Mary is tremendously blessed because she's the mother of Jesus, the promised Messiah. Verse 42, she knows Jesus is both her Lord and her Savior. Then last but not least, verse 43, she knows Mary is blessed because Mary believed that what God had promised, he's also able to perform. Verse 45, this is the fulfillment of what God has spoken. Here's the question. How does Elizabeth know all of this? Well, it tells us in verse 41. Because she's filled with the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God at work in the person of God so that she might know the things of God. Absolutely glorious. Now let's look at B, Mary's response, starting in verse 46. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Here's a question for you. When you look at these verses, where is Mary's hope? Where is Mary's hope? Is Mary hoping in herself? Is she hoping in the present she's going to get for Christmas? Is she hoping in great food or a clean house or in perfect kids? who always say please and thank you. 
who always play nicely with one another and who always clean up their mess? Is it an unreasonable expectation that she has that will never be met, never be satisfied? Is that what you see here? No. Her hope is in God. It's a simple hope in God. Don't you see? So often we put our hope in unreasonable expectations that will never be met or satisfied. I think we put our hope there without even realizing it. Our hope is so often in the here and now. It's lodged in ourselves, our world, our efforts, our plans, our agenda, and our stuff, rather than hoping in the Lord. Rather than having our hope lodged in his plan and his son and his salvation. Look again at what Mary says. My soul magnifies the Lord. I rejoice in God, my Savior. For he has looked on my humble estate and he is mighty and he is merciful to save me. It's crystal clear, is it not? That both Elizabeth and Mary have their hope lodged in the Lord Jesus Christ and the eternal salvation that only he can provide. So then here's the million dollar question this morning. What's your response? And where is your hope? You see, my recommendation is that we keep it simple this year. So a simple hope that we have clarity in the midst of the Christmas chaos and we keep our hope fixed on one thing. So not a thousand things, just one thing. A hope fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the glory of that simple hope that if you have the Lord Jesus as the one true hope for your soul, then it will keep everything else in your life simple. Because he came on a mission to save you from your sins, which, by the way, is the single biggest issue in your life, right? You have a sin problem, which causes immediate problems. Discontentment, financial debt, anxiety, worry, stress, relational tensions, heartache, and heartbreak. But it also causes eternal problems, namely the separation from God for all eternity, just like everyone else. So sin is your biggest problem. So then if sin is taken care of, then everything else, which is of significantly lesser value, should fall into place. Shouldn't it? Because that's specifically why Jesus came. To solve your sin problem. Matthew one twenty one says, And you shall call his name Jesus. Why should I call him Jesus? Because he will save his people from their sin. So when your hope is firmly fixed in Jesus, then your biggest issue in life is taken care of. And everything else is allowed to fall into its right perspective. So let me appeal to you. 
to have a simple hope this Christmas. Super simple. Put your hope in the Lord Jesus. And put it in the Lord Jesus for these specific reasons. The forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. A simple hope in Jesus. And for you, dear believer, I want to say the same thing. Because it's so easy for every single one of us to lose perspective, especially around the holidays. And why is that? Well, it's because we overcomplicate our lives with incredible busyness and with unreasonable expectations. So suddenly it's not enough for us to just be forgiven of our sin or just have the hope of eternal life. Suddenly it's about everything else that doesn't have any significant eternal value, which means we've lost our way and we lose perspective. And suddenly everything is anything but simple. So I want to appeal to you that as we head into this Christmas season, that you would take time out of your busy schedule to make sure that you are keeping things in perspective. What exactly might that look like? Well, how about reading through the Christmas story in both Matthew and in Luke? How about sitting down and making a reading schedule just for the month of December? I mean, do you realize that if you started today and just read one chapter per day, do you know how long it takes to read one chapter a day? Five minutes on average. If you get into Luke and you start arguing, there's 50-some chapters in this or 50-some verses. This is more than five minutes. Okay, sorry, six minutes. It takes six minutes to read one chapter. You could read through the entire gospel of Matthew in the rest of this month. Six minutes a day. If you're an overachiever, you read two chapters, you could read all the way through Matthew and Luke. Twelve minutes. Just think with me about this. What if you read specifically for this reason? That you might see there's nothing impossible for God. You just read through the gospel with that lens, with, with those, that vision of what you're looking for, that there is absolutely nothing that is impossible with God. And you would see it immediately, the incarnation of Christ. You would see it in his life, his death, his miracles, his atonement, the resurrection from the dead. There's nothing impossible with God. You know what J.I. Packer says in his book, Knowing God? He says the real staggering Christian claim is not Christ's miracles, it's not his atonement, it's not even his resurrection. The staggering claim of Christianity is Christ's incarnation. And when you get a hold of that, Christ's incarnation, God becoming man, there's no other difficulties to resolve. Why is that? Because there's nothing that is impossible with God. 
Now, don't you think that in the chaos of Christmas and in the general difficulty of life, keeping that clear, that there is nothing impossible with God, keeping that reality clear in your mind would have incredible impact. Great clarity, great courage, great conviction, great ability to have a simple hope that keeps the gospel central, relationships primary, and your focus clear so that you might be sharing the simple message of Christmas with others. And to maintain in the midst of the chaos an incredible, unwavering joy in your heart and excitement in your life as you long, just like Elizabeth and Mary, for Christ's second coming. So think about this. How did they have such great joy? How did they have such great excitement? I'm putting it in hope. What is hope? Hope is the assurance of something in the future. But it's grounded in the past and the promises that have been made. So then we need to know the promises of God so that we might have our hope fixed for the future. How about this one? Currently, momentary light affliction. That's right now. Preparing us for what? An eternal weight of glory. That's in the future. If your hope is grounded in the promises of God, it'll impact the right now as you long for the future. He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him surely give us all things? See how that's grounded in the past? He who did not spare his own son, freely offered him up for us at the cross, grounded in the past, promises that surely... He will give us all things in the future. Are you seeing that? And do you understand when you have that simple hope that'll simplify everything else in life? As you're pressed and you're tempted by the chaos of Christmas, oh, I pray that we would be those who have a simple hope grounded in the Lord Jesus that guarantees that future glory. Allow me to pray to that end. Lord, we are so grateful, so grateful to take time out to glory in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and to delight ourselves in the reality that these promises were made hundreds of years ago and find their full and their final fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise you that a son has been given, that a child has been born, that he is the Messiah, that he is our Lord, that he is the King of kings, and he is our Savior. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would have a simple hope in him. Be at work in our minds that we would know these things to be true and be at work in our hearts that we would believe them with great clarity, courage, and conviction that we would hold on to them and that they would impact every single day 
of our lives. Lord, do that good work for our good and for your eternal glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.